Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very, very happy and pleased to bring the conversation I had with the lovely, the brilliant, the wonderful Kat Bohannon. Uh, Kat recently got her PhD at Columbia University, where she studied the evolution of narrative and cognition. Much of her writing has appeared in Scientific American, Science Magazine, uh, Georgia Review, and others. And she is the author of the latest book, Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. And it is fantastic. A great, great book. One of my favorites this year. Absolutely loved it. Uh, And I was just so pleased that I got to talk with her about it. We start the conversation by talking about first her wide and diverse academic background and really how this helped her prepare to write the book, um, which I thought was deeply fascinating. We talk about how she starts the book, about how there was many um, limited female subjects and many research papers in many disciplines, um, and how that is still true to this day, which is uh, quite disturbing in some ways, um, and so how, how this is uh, important to say, see how do we understand uh, the role in which um, Many women and females play within history, within science of, you know, history of science. Um, and how do we see how we talk about uh, women in science? Um, we start all the way 200 million years ago uh, with uh, Morgie. And we talk about here with this animal, how milk became important um, for mammals. We talk about many features of milk, such as bonding, attachment, the letdown reflex. We obviously, if we're talking about Milk. We're talking for females. We're talking about uh, breasts, and we also talk about some of the sexual selection ideas from evolutionary psychology on breasts. We then move on to wombs. We talk about uteruses as well. We talk about wombs in terms from how it looks for monotremes, for marsupials, for placentals like us. We talk about the placenta. We talk about the menstrual cycle. Uh, we talk about the risks and difficulties of pregnancy. We talk about the grandmother hypothesis and uh, some of her ideas on it, which were deeply fascinating. And we talk about the future of, of, of females uh, in the 21st century. Now, as I say in the conversation, there is a lot in this book uh, that we did not cover. Um, I, time is always my enemy in these situations. And even though I got to talk with, with Kat for uh, a good bit, she talks about, as we mentioned in the conversation, but um, perception in females. She talks about brains and intelligence in females. She talks about some of the f- other physical aspects of the body. Um, so we 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 really we talk about uh, many things here, such as um, you know, in terms of the womb and the uterus and pregnancy and, and all these other features. But there are many other uh, aspects in the book we didn't get to. Which means everyone should go out there and, and pick up her book. I promise you it's extremely well-written, very clear, um, but very um, informative and detailed. And uh, she has such a nice voice that comes through in the book, as I mentioned. And so uh, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, there was a, a slight, just as a kind of a bit of housekeeping on this bit of it, um, that one of this mishaps were my, one of my settings on the microphone was not completely turned on. So you may hear a little bit of a, uh, not as a crystal clear as I'm coming in now on the mic. So apologies for that, but uh, hopefully it doesn't take away from the content of a very good conversation. 
Uh, as always, you can find this conversation, all the conversations at convergendialogues.substack.com. So get over there. If you haven't already subscribed, subscribe, follow, like. You can contribute as well. I'm also on YouTube. Tell your friends, people if you would like the podcast. Uh, make sure you, you share it widely. And uh, now I bring you Cat Bohan. Here with Kat Bohannon. Uh, Kat, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to speaking with you. Hey, sure. Happy to hang out. Yeah, yeah. You've written a, a wonderful book, uh, which is called Eve Thank you. How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Um, and this is uh, quite uh, spectacular. I still can't believe this is your first book, which is, uh, as we were saying before we got on, it's, uh, it's uh, quite remarkable. And I know you've been working on it for a while. So we're going to get all into it, and uh, before we do, why don't you tell listeners um, who you are, what your background is uh, academically and professionally, and uh, what you're currently up to. Right. So um, I'm Kat. I am a researcher and theorist in narrative cognition. So I just finished my PhD at Columbia University last year. Uh, astonishingly, did indeed finish, yes. And uh, my committee was split between uh, literature and psychology with uh, mentors over in neuro and comp sci. I uh, wrote a bunch of computer programs, essentially, uh, to understand how uh, story works as a mnemonic. Why do stories help you remember stuff? Uh, that's what I did there. Uh, just finished the PhD. Haven't started a postdoc yet because it seems I'm a bit busy on tour because I just wrote this rather large book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but don't worry, the last third or so is notes, so you don't need to be intimidated. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the book is is uh, is absolutely fabulous. Yeah, it's, it's, it is the fastest, I mean, I think it clocks in over 600. Uh, I think it's about mm-hmm. four, some change, but it's, uh, it's really, really great. And I like how you kind of organize it by talking about different uh, kind of uh, mammals. And you talk about different aspects of it. I guess the, the one question, we don't have to spend too much time on this, but I think it is interesting your your background into this, as you were describing it, is I would not have put uh, your background with a book on on evolution and and evolution of uh, of, of uh, uh, different types of, of of mammals, things like that. So it's very much on uh, females, but it's you you cover the whole spectrum of things. And so I guess just briefly, how did your background in in literature, and of course you've got your your hands in a lot of different pots. How did that kind of prepare you to kind of write this book for, you know, preparing for it for many years and to, to finally get it out? Well, given that my dad was a research psychologist and my mother was a pianist, um, well, there was never any hope for me to be normal, for sure. <laughs> but it's also true that uh, I grew up helping prep slides for dad's experiments by the time I was in puberty. I was a subject way before I was a researcher, so I've had lots of therapy. And like, I I have a kind of, it's not a sensory synesthesia. It's not that when I hear music, I see color or anything mm-hmm. like that, but I do have a kind of intellectual synesthesia. Mm. It's often the case that when I'm prepping my experiments, when I'm using more of my science mind to do some cog psych stuff, I often have uh, a brain over in aesthetics and philosophy of aesthetics mm. and vice versa. When I'm making art, I'm often making art about science. So um, way before I did this book, I was a poet, and I was mostly writing poetry about science. Um, so what, what prepared me to write this book? Well, I think um, because I was always so very interdisciplinary, and my dissertation was very interdisciplinary, too, with that committee split between the sciences and the humanities. 
and having to sort of please both. Um, I was used to, how do I put it? To do interdisciplinary work, you have to have chutzpah. Sure. Okay. You have to have, have enough ego to think you could remotely do it. There's that. Sure. Um, but you also have to have a certain kind of willingness to be embarrassed, actually. Because when you walk out of your training and you walk over, sometimes literally across the hall into another department and sit down in someone's office, you have to be willing to ask questions that turn out to be not the right questions to ask or to have read something and not quite have gotten it yet, um, but know that uh, the person you're asking very likely will be happy to correct you and find commonality, right? So I suppose it's both... um, I suppose it's it's both a bravery and a foolishness, mm. right, mm. to do this kind of work. I will say that my father, oh, a very, very long time ago, he took me to a lecture by Stephen Jay Gould, mm. who was actually a brilliant speaker. Not everybody who's good at these things, at the public communication of science, is necessarily good on stage. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. You can be good on a page and not on a stage. Mm. That's very much a thing. <laughs> he was really good at both, it turned out, and it was just... Ah, I remember going home and having just like insomnia just because my brain would not shut up. I was just so goddamn inspired. Um, so, so, yeah. My direct training um, helped me for the book for the brain chapter uh, because I had some training in evolution of cognition. I had, you know, taken um, some seminars over in psych at Columbia. I, um, I had some prep there, and of course, growing up the way I did, and of course, for the voice chapter in the evolution of language. Mm. Uh, but the rest of it, I was climbing Physiology Mountain. <laughs> well, you you definitely know how to do your homework, and there's this there's a beginning part of the uh, of the book which I'm gonna be very honest. I didn't know this, and I, I feel somewhat ashamed that I didn't know this. You start the book by talking about this fact that in so many studies across various disciplines, <clears throat> psychology included women aren't used as, as subjects for many of these studies. And I was curious about that, of why did you want to start there, kind of like the introduction or preface or whatever it is, to, to kind of just show how much work needs to be done in scientific research. When we talk about, I don't think that invalidates scientific research, but it's a big hole to say, well, if you're going to say these things work, across disciplines, whether it's sociology or anthropology or psychology, sociology, whatever it is, and all of the subjects were college students that were, you know, white dudes or whatever. Again, nothing wrong with that. But to then apply that or, you know, uh, kind of extrapolate that for uh, women and they weren't used as subjects or very uh, minimal use, um, that there's a big issue there. And even even up until more recently, it's not like there's this big, big, big push that's been uh, where where women are used as subjects as much as they probably should. So I, I was curious about why you start the book there to kind of introduce us into this story you're going to tell about uh, the 200 million years of uh, you know, uh, human body. So um, actually, to my understanding, um, psych is one of the few spaces of research where there are a lot of female subjects. Um, but they're mostly white mm-hmm. and well-educated and of a certain socioeconomic class, the so-called weird problem, yeah. right? <laughs> that psychology and psychological research is, is trying to face down right now. Um, 
So in fact, because of that, because I'd grown up uh, watching my father build his labs at uh, various universities, first Emory and then Georgia Tech and then then all the way out to Butler in Indianapolis, I, I just kept seeing a lot of women in the lab and I saw a lot of women being subjects, you know. And so I just assumed that was just kind of mm-hmm. like all of science definitely has a spread of male and female subjects. They do seem suspiciously white, but other than that, okay, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually it was a moment at Columbia that convinced that when I, not convinced me, it was a moment at Columbia when I first learned that the male norm was very much a thing in the biological sciences. Because remember, I had never worked with mouse, you know, I had never worked with freaking rodents or <laughs> even primates, you know, like that was not, I did computational stuff. My laptop was my lab, you know? Um, so I was, we were out a group of us. I was friends with a lot of neuroscience postdocs, one of whom was a collaborator, but otherwise just friends, you know, a group of people at Columbia and we were having a drink uh, on campus. And this friend who was um, actually in a Nobel laureate's lab, but I obviously can't say who, sure. um, was giving his normal presentation of his data, right? So he's like, okay, uh, please don't fire me. Here are my very attractive graphs that I have made for you to show that I have done the good sciencing, you know, and um, please keep supporting me, dear Lord of mine, right? So, uh, which is always that terrifying moment. But anyway, so it turned out that the story, the scientific story that he and his advisor, his PI rather, had wanted to chase down wasn't very interesting, but because he happened to be collaborating with another lab, he happened to use a large number of both male and female uh, rodents, I believe it was mouse, um, to do their experiments. And the sex differences, oh my goodness, it was a very strong signal. So strong, in fact, that he was suspicious and he ran the experiment again, mm. right? Um, and so he presented that to his PI and said, hey, look, I think, I think this is what we need to chase down. And the PI sat back in his chair and said, you know, I think it's an artifact. In other words, I think there's something wrong with your data or how you analyzed or how you did it. In other words, go do the experiment again. And my friend, you know, told me that he said to the guy, no, 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 did it twice. Here it is. Did all, look at, very nice looking graph. Look at those margins of error. They're so nice and small. See? And, um, and no, the guy wasn't interested. He was like, I, I just don't think that we should go back to our original question, mm. you know? Mm. And that's when I found out that actually most of biological research is only using male bodies. Um, this is finally starting to change, but for the last half century or so of research, the way that they controlled for the messiness of cycling female mammalian hormones was to just not use females in the subject pool. Which admittedly is one way to handle it, I guess. It's certainly the <laughs> it's cheapest one, it's way. one way, think yes. About it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just um, slightly a problem when you start thinking about what it means to build a model, right, right of yeah. one thing or another as a target of study. And it certainly matters when you remember that most biological research uh, starts in basic research, but then if there are applications, if there are things that might go into biomed, in other words, might be applicable to human beings, might even develop into a drug we might take. You know, all of the research that then goes into the start of a clinical trial is based on basic research where there's a huge gap in knowledge about female bodies. And then on the other hand, since the 1970s, we had these rules in the United States and elsewhere that you weren't supposed to include women in of reproductive age in your subject pool because of the fear that we don't know what's going to be teratogenic. We don't know what's going to hurt unborn children. 
So even if she's not pregnant right now, she could get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Or if she is pregnant, definitely don't include her because that's a compound. Right. So effectively, it's from the 1970s until the 1990s when we finally changed the rules. Um, no women of reproductive age were included in biomedical research or clinical trials. And reproductive age, just as a reminder for your listeners, is anywhere around 11 mm -hmm. or so mm -hmm. until somewhere in your 50s. Mm -hmm. So that's 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 most of my life. Yeah, that's most yep. of this month. Uh, <laughs> yes. That's 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 most mostly mostly me as an adult. Yeah, um, which is an obvious gap. No. And we're only just now starting to uh, realize how many of the medicines on the market have been either never properly tested in clinical settings and uh, and research settings it, uh, before coming to market. Or if they were, the experiments were improperly done or it was never analyzed for sex differences because there was an assumption it didn't matter. And only now are we starting to do things like adjust dosing regimens, depending whether you're not you're a male or a female patient. So the reason I start the book there is, well, first of all, it's because that's what finally kicked me in the butt. And I decided, yes, OK, I'm going to write the book. Mm. Because in, in part, I was kind of like, I didn't know if I was the right person to write a book. I'd never written a prose book before. I'd written scientific papers and I'd written poems. Mm. And some very bad songs at some point in the 90s, um, which thankfully do not exist on the Internet. Right. But like I'd never I'd never written a, a book uh, like this before. And I didn't know if I was the right person, but it, it's it's I mean, it's a moral imperative. Nobody had written such a book before. And it was very much a problem that we weren't paying attention to sex differences. So I'm like, all right, fine. All right, fine. This is why this book needs to exist. Yeah, no, it's it's I, I, I'm going back to the, the piece you said there about you know, we need to have a kind of model of sorts, right? And I think in many ways, yeah. all of the eaves that you uh, introduce us to are kind of, you know, in, in an evolutionary sense, building off one another in some ways with each of their own distinctive kind of characteristics. But it's important to see that history and the time frame of what it is to have a model of the female body. So I think it's, I mean, the, the work is super important. So you you, you do 200 million years, so this takes us time of the dinosaurs, and you start with mm -hmm. the one of the ancient uh, land mammals, very, very small critter, uh, called Morgi is the, is the short term. There's, yep. a, there's a longer term. And you use this... Yeah, you use this, this animal to talk about milk. Um, and so I think listeners may know that there was a period where uh, animals would lay eggs, and at a certain point... There was this uh, jump to having milk, um, and so then uh, obviously evolving breasts to have milk, and this is the thing that makes us mammalian, right? It's one all mammal to black. So what is what is that transition, right? We have obviously the three types of mammals, the the monotremes, not as many around, marsupials and placentals, um, but maybe talk about that. Why uh, Morgi is the important uh, character here for that kind of story of the transition from eggs to, uh, to breast and with milk? Yeah, so um, one of the deep reasons that I structure the book the way I do, uh, going, moving essentially forward in time uh, from you know, the dawn of mammals or mammalia forms, as we understand them, uh, up through the human species today, isn't just a narrative device. It's also reflective of this deep assumption that we make in biology, which is there's a reason to have a model in rodent, mm. which is to say there's an assumption that 
certain traits are conserved over evolutionary time. That the reason it's informative to see something like an analog of Alzheimer's or an analog of X or Y, you know, in a mouse is because it may well still kind of work that way by the time you get up to human, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, like moving and, and when you do find a target uh, of research in, say, a mouse model, now I'm talking about biomed here, but in general, this is true in biology, you often then want to essentially move up the evolutionary chain uh, because you would start maybe in rodent, but then you would collaborate and you might move into primate mm. and before you move into human clinic, right? So in other words, you would go up and see if this thing that you're seeing still works in what is essentially a later version uh, or more recent version of mammal on the way to our body plan, right? So, so it's both the story of our evolution, but it's also reflective very much of how we think in the biological sciences, right? That, that, that this is where this stuff is coming from, and we can learn things about ourselves by looking back at things that are more ancient. Mm. So I start with Morgie um, uh, in part because uh, I think it becomes one of the first moments that uh, we have a trait that places us where we are in the taxonomic tree that has a very significant sex difference, you know? Um, so there are proto-mammals, and then before that, mammalian-like lizards, way before 200 million years ago, the theraspids and other sorts of things, that are having some of the traits that will build into that mammalian body plan, right? Again, I'm talking about super deep time here, mm -hmm. so huge stretches way back. But the reason then to pick someone like uh, Morganicodon is that once you arrive at lactation, then you're really changing the game for how sex differences are going to build out in that mammalian evolutionary path. And importantly, uh, how mammals in general are going to work a little bit differently um, because of how we make and care for our offspring. There's these interesting pieces that come into play with the notion of providing uh, milk. And there's some really fascinating things that you talk about with, with breast and with milk. The fact that 90% of breast milk is water. That. Yep. <laughs> um, of course, we're also a lot of water, too. Just assume all life is a lot of water. <laughs> sure. So that's not the surprising feature necessarily. Maybe 90% is surprising. 90% is surprising, um, yeah. And, yeah. And that they're filled with lots of things, blood, fat, tissue. It's not just milk. And that right. they can only hold a, a tablespoon of milk at a time. You talk about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Play. These aren't sloshing bags. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right. So, I guess to tell us about how um, we know it today, some of the the, the aspects or the kind of um, the variables or the facts that we know about breast today and many of the different functions, and then kind of like how we've got there because it didn't. You know, they started. You know, I think you see this in other uh, mammals where. It was kind of like the, 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 the younglings would like, you know, kind of suck through the fur on top. It wasn't actual breast. And they kind of lap it up. Yeah. It's not even a sucking. Yeah. yeah. And, but it's we don't have that now. More of a slurp. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have that now. Well, actually, mm, I don't know about the kid, echidna. I think maybe the echidna as well, but I do know the duck-billed platypus, which is the monotreme. Ah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is often assumed to be a bit in some ways like a basal mammal. Mm. Still lays eggs. Mm -hmm. uh, also, no nipple there. Mm -hmm. No nipple. Nipple is an add-on feature that comes later. Milk <laughs> starts before nipple. And milk, uh, milk glands, uh, evolve from ancient endocrine glands, which are the same kind of thing that makes sweat, mm -hmm. essentially, and oil, sebaceous glands, in your um, skin, mm -hmm. right? 
So milk starts, in other words, as something skin is making. Mm. Um, it starts in kind of an admittedly kind of gross way. I'll just, I'll just be upfront about that. <laughs> kind of gross. Uh, so we're egg layers and uh, a lot, but we're not hard egg layers. Don't not, so don't picture like a chicken egg. Picture like a leathery lizard-like mm. kind of egg. Mm-hmm. You, know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Uh, soft shell, in other words. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing about soft shells is you need to keep them damp, right? Because that offspring is still developing in there. And dehydration is a problem because again, all land-based mammals uh, need water and that includes in early in development. So you can't have a shriveled up, dried out egg. You need to keep it moist. So a lot of uh, creatures today that lay leathery eggs will often secrete a kind of mucusy goo, frankly, that um, is full of antifungal and antibacterial material actually. Because remember, if you're keeping something moist by coating it in goo, well, then it's just a festering breeding mm-hmm. ground for mm-hmm. parasites and fungus. And, and you don't want like your eggs to be like a week old moldy bread, mm-hmm. right? You want them, in fact, to not be hideously infected and grown over. So it, it, it evolves, in other words, this egg, egg goo mm-hmm. to coat the eggs in this useful little moist packet to help regulate that water until the leather eggs ready, ready to hatch. Now, among mammals that do that, not mammals, sorry, among animals that do that today, Many of them will lap up some of the stuff when they first hatch. It's kind of like kind of like their first meal mm-hmm, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the assumption is is this is how milk starts too, mm. right? That it starts just by licking up this stuff, and eventually there's some glands down in the lower abdomen that start secreting more of the stuff because it gives their kids a boost, uh, and then eventually turns into this water delivery system uh, that we call milk. But we should think about it in other words as the start of this immunological advantage that the uh, mother's body is offering to the offspring in their early, very vulnerable period of life when their own immune systems haven't really, you know, they're not able to do everything yet, mm. right? So uh, not simply to protect the eggs, but then also in early in development to give that immunological boost. And then eventually, speaking of immunology, uh, it gives you water. Because water is just a known zone for pathogens. It's like very, very easy to contract any of a host of bacteria or viruses or any of other, you know, not great stuff through water sources when they're not clean. And of course, there's no potable water 200 million years ago. There's no like filtration system. So if you can think of the mother's body as a kind of filtration system, right? It, her pups are then getting all of their water through the mother's body in early development by having lactation, by having milk, right? Which means they're again shielded from infectious agents and other kinds of problems in those critical early phases of life. So there are known advantages having a milk-based reproduction plan, right? Um, Obviously, uh, the majority of the animal world by most measures, uh, still lay eggs. And I would argue it still seems to be a better system than what we do with live birth. But um, <laughs> lactation, at least, has some good stuff going for it. That's yeah, so fascinating. Because you, you're, you're talking about this, this kind of water delivery system, but you also have these elements in humans of, um, we, we know that there's this importance of prolactin and oxytocin, but then the role mm-hmm. of attachment that comes with mothers and children uh, also cortisol is involved. How do we understand or how, I mean, I know there's been good amounts of studies that have looked at 
the psychological um, and emotional and mental development as well, not just the physical uh, nutrients that uh, breast milk can give. So I, how do we get to that piece? Was there this piece of like, well, as our brains have continued to evolve, we need stuff in at certain points? Or how, how do we get to this component of it you know, from an evolutionary scale? So what I hear you asking is you're interested in the features of parent-offspring bonding uh -huh. that seem to be built into yeah. um, lactation. Yeah? Yep, yep. yep. Now, um, yep. So I absolutely agree with you that it is a really critical period of interaction between a mother and offspring as true for a mouse and an ancient weasel rat like Morgie, uh, as it is for human beings today. You're spending a lot of time with your offspring, with that offspring literally attached to your abdomen or chest wall. And, um, and there's just a lot of cross-communication happening there. And as I write about in the book, some of that communication is uh, chemical, effectively, um, in both directions. Mm -hmm. And some of that communication is more overtly behavioral and social, mm -hmm. right? And uh, in human, you might want to call brain-based. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Now, like I say in the book, I think oxytocin uh, is uh, a little bit too buzzy. Mm -hmm. uh, we do and don't know what oxytocin does. You know, um, it's gotten a lot of uh, very frilly sorts of reps, like it's for bonding and it's going to play into your monogamy. And oxytocin apparently is for anything that's feel good, yes, yes. Um, which, which is and isn't actually true. Some of that research is good. And some of it's frankly a little bit garbage, Bunk. right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, what we do know oxytocin for sure does, which is probably how this originally evolves, is that it's really good at making certain kinds of muscles contract. Mm. That's what it's actually really, really good at. So the reason oxytocin is listed as one of the um, WHO's uh, critical medicines for, the, for global health is that it induces labor, mm. actually. Um, oxytocin, if, if you're inducing labor, you give a patient a, a big fat dose of oxy and that uterus is going to start contracting and will eventually go into labor. Likewise, we know that oxytocin is involved in the so-called letdown reflex in, in milk production, right? Milk is this co-produced biological product. And what I mean by that is that, as you say, and I say in the book, we're not carrying a couple jugs of milk sloshing around in there mm -hmm. when we're breastfeeding. It's only a couple tablespoons in all of those gland ducts. The sucking itself, the action that stimulates uh, the breast, uh, triggers what's called a letdown reflex, which tells the milk glands, okay, it's time to start gearing up production and, and pushing it down the tubes towards the nipple and towards the offspring, right? And we know that oxytocin is likewise involved in that signaling pathway for that, for that letdown reflex, that it's making basically tissue in the breast contract to squeeze the milk out, um, right? So oxytocin's really good at squeezing, right? That's what it's for. Um, all of these add-on perks mm. that seem to maybe be involved with bonding and deep brain stuff and maybe sexuality, unclear, is definitely like a later add-on feature mm. to just the basic squeeziness mm. of that little guy. Mm. So, th th so there's an another another question here kind of off of that is there's obviously what you're talking about is you know the functionality of 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 breast and of milk but then we also have other things as social animals uh social social uh primates that we've 
heard a lot of ideas about. And you, you kind of, in the book, you, you, you kind of acknowledge it, but don't put a lot of maybe emphasis on it as maybe as other people do. Um, I know plenty of folks that are in evolutionary psych world and they like to put a lot of emphasis on waist to hip ratio in terms of sexual ornamentation, things like that. And I mean, I, it makes an appearance in my book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you waste it. Yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't flat out kind of, de, you know, deny those things. But I think you maybe say that there's too much emphasis on that. So, I mean, so here's the question. The question is, is that in terms of how society looks at, you know, breast as evolutionary payoffs, right? Is it is it true that they they are used for those things, such as sexual ornamentation, sexual selection mm-hmm. for arousal and attraction, mm-hmm. things like that. Or mm-hmm. is that overplayed too much? Is that is that is that not always the case? So where do you kind of, I guess, land here? Well, I mean, I think it's always useful to have a, a healthy suspicion of uh, any research that seems deeply culturally guided mm. and not necessarily data-based. That doesn't mean it's never true. I just mean that it's good to have a nice, healthy, just carry that, not just a pinch, carry like a little bag of salt around <laughs> with you and just be like, I don't know. You know, be ready to be skeptical because, um, you know, remember that science is not simply the data, but the interpretation of mm-hmm, the data mm-hmm. and the design of an experiment. And there's a lot of uh, social uh, of the social situation of the uh, scientists involved that inevitably play into how we understand what we see. Mm. Yeah. So I've heard some very good theories for why human beings have the sort of breasts that we do. And I've heard some astonishingly bad ones. <laughs> and I, I give a kind of overview of some of those mm-hmm. in the book. Um, easily the worst theory I've heard for why human beings have breasts. And again, by this now, I mean, not simply, um, that we lactate and have nipples and glandular tissue, mm-hmm. right? That's just sort of like, we know why we have that because we're mammals. Mm-hmm. That's clear. Mm-hmm. Actually, you have it too. It's just that because of your SRY gene, it just didn't develop as much as mine. But you actually right. not only have nipples, you also have, yeah yeah, 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 you can very much lactate. You actually have breast tissue, your memory tissue under there. Yeah. It's just very flat and small. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Enough about your chest, right? So, um, so we know why we have that. In other words, that's like no one's arguing about that. Yeah. The argument is what all this extra fat and like pendulous quality and shape is for, mm-hmm. right? And because uh, so many heterosexual uh, men are uh, attracted to these things, you know, one is tempted to build a theory around it being a sexually selected trait. Sure. That doesn't mean it's not, but it's useful to be suspicious mm. because, for example, here's a very bad theory I heard. So he, the theory essentially goes like this. And the assumption is that the breast is a show trait, sexually selected, that uh, males like to look at it. And if the female had it, then she got more sex and had more babies and ta-da, evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a runaway trait, in other words, mm-hmm. a sexually selected trait. Right? Okay. So apparently we used to walk on four legs, but then at some point we stood up. Mm-hmm. And that meant that all of a sudden uh, our butt wasn't at eye level anymore, but our breasts were. And so breasts evolved to look like a butt. And that would turn guys on. Not kidding. This is in a peer-reviewed journal. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's definitely a theory. That's a theory for sure. You know, I'm like, well, that's a theoretical choice. Okay. Um, you know, and I, I did my best to kind of like find it plausible and just, just could not get there. Just could not. I just don't think that my chest looks like a butt. I just don't. I know there are two mounds and mine are a bit bigger than some other women's. But, but actually, when you look at the wide diversity 
of breast shape in the human species mm -hmm. today. Um, that's actually one of the best evidence against uh, extra large breasts being the most successful version of a breast. Actually, we're, we have widely divergent um, breast shapes and sizes, mm -hmm. right? Um, and likewise, uh, breasts that have any amount of size to them uh, don't actually look uh, very butt-like after there's been a few babies and suckling. As anybody who's looked at old editions of National Geographic <laughs> will be happy to tell you, they look more like kind of kind of pointy pancakes. You know what I mean? Uh, so, so that's not, that's not a high mound. You yeah. see what I mean? So given that we haven't been wearing, uh, underwire bras, uh, in the 300,000 year history of our species, right? It seems unlikely that that's the best indicative, right? Of the shape. Um, at, however, one of the better arguments I've heard for the shape itself being something that's useful was tied to a functionality rather than an attractiveness, rather than a sexually selected trait. So um, because we have flat faces uh, compared to other primates, our muzzles are kind of squashed up against under our eyes, right? And our noses, however big one is or isn't with uh, the, the cartilage, it's still much shorter mm -hmm. than your average uh, ape, yeah? And that means that our newborns, when they're smooshed up against our breast tissue, um, suckling in uh, early life, uh, if they do, uh, well, can't really breathe very well because the nostril is, you know, with a different breast shape. So there was an argument that maybe this sort of teardrop shape with a slight up tilt might help keep a nostril or two free so that the poor kid can breathe while mm -hmm. trying to also drink and eat, right? Um, and I thought that was a pretty good theory too. Again, I didn't know how to resolve that with the inevitable more pancake shape in a non-broad person, you know, which is just, again, a very natural, normal thing, presumably in the ancient history of our species would have been true, right? Mm. So like, I don't know. I don't know how to resolve that exactly. Mm. Um, so my feeling is more than likely it, it evolved somehow for the more obvious important effort, which is successfully lactating and nursing a baby. And then any add-on sexiness perk would have come later. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's very interesting how there's still questions that are still there um, or potential yeah, yeah. questions that are there. It's like, oh, we don't, there's still things about us that we've known forever, it seems like, but there's still things that are kind of question marks of like, well, we're not too sure, or, or, or maybe it makes sense here, but it, it might not make sense later, which is, which is really, really interesting. And that's why we, you know, we keep doing good research and things like that. So, okay, so let's, let's move to the, the womb. Um, this was probably the most fascinating part, one of the most fascinating parts of the book, but uh, there's a lot of material in here, so I'll, I'll try and do very general sweep and then maybe some, some details here. But you, you mentioned that <clears throat> the female body became a gestation machine, that having, by having eggs incubate inside the body and this development of a placenta. Um, so there's in the book, uh, li listeners should, should get the book, but in the, they can't see the picture. There's this fascinating, I've heard this before and it's just, it's a fascinating thing in development of when, uh, you have a fetus at six weeks in the, in the, um, uh, development of uh, genitals at six weeks, 12 weeks and 20 weeks, 20 weeks is where you kind of get the difference, if you will. But before mm -hmm. that, there's. I mean, it's it's the same. It's basically the same for for kind of traditional. Oh yeah, yeah. The, male they're humans. called genital buds. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The That's formation of our undercarriage, uh, 
when we're, you know, in these early stages of development are remarkably very much the same thing for a long time. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. also true that in urogenital development, because remember that you're developing not simply genitals, but you're, where your urethra is going to go. Right. Right. Because right. it's all in the human species. It's all very, you know, that's a, that's a critical developmental feature mm -hmm. uh, of what's going on in our crotch. Um, it's one of the most common sites of divergence or in some cases malformation mm -hmm. uh, in males and females, um, but actually, especially in males. Um, mm. Having your a urethra go kind of funky is a very common thing in a cis male baby. Mm. Yep. Um, and it's a, often a simple surgery to fix. Mm. Interesting. There's this, there's this piece on, 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 in the book where you kind of get this image. So you can help me kind of explain this. So you talk about it with different uh, mammals. So <clears throat> there are differences with mammals and their different vaginas. Monotrims oh, yeah. have... How do you say this? A colloquia? How do you say this? Uh, I believe it's uh, cloaca. Cloaca? I, yeah. I don't think it's cloaca. Pretty sure okay. it's cloaca. Okay. Cloaca. And then they lay eggs. Marsupials have two holes and then a pouch. Is yes. this right? And then. The pouch is up front, but the pouch doesn't have a hole. Okay. The pouch is just a pouch with some nipples inside. And then yep. you have urethrians, <laughs> and they have three. Is this right? Eutherians. We have a three hole plan. Yeah. In the female. Mm -hmm. In the female, we have a three-hole plan. The um, the marsupials almost always have a two-hole plan, mm -hmm. what's called a urogenital sinus, where uh, both urine and the reproductive organs uh, deposit their wares, you know, to exit the body, mm -hmm. and uh, a rectum mouth back. And the uh, echidna and the um, duckbill platypus, the monotremes, which are assumed to be, in some ways, more representative of very basal mammals, where all of us came from, in other words, all three of these mammal types, um, who still lay eggs and still only have one hole, hence monotreme. Mm -hmm. Actually, the mono is representing literally the one hole they got in the back, which is exactly the same as what a bird has. Mm. A bird actually doesn't have a butt. A bird has one hole. Mm. Uh, and so do monotremes and the duck-billed platypus, where all three of their major uh, out pads mm. on the bottom end, which is the, you know, uh, the, the rectal opening, the uh, urethra, where your urine goes, and your reproductive material, which uh, for them would be where the egg rolls out. Mm -hmm. It's all coming out basically the same sinus, the same hole behind mm -hmm. a single per string opening. Yeah. So one of the key divergences uh, in our evolution was the split from a common ancestor uh, that eventually became, you know, marsupials um, or the uh, placental Eutherians like us, um, at, which in many ways involved having a two-hole plan or a three-hole plan. Mm -hmm. And there are advantages to either, uh, depending who you ask. But that is one of the key, key differences there. One of the really critical things that happened actually was not down in the holes exactly, the, where things come out of the body, mm -hmm. but actually how the tubing is arranged in the lower pelvis. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, is that marsupials, again, easiest way to remember that is they have a pouch and we don't. Right. So the marsupials have a pouch. Mm -hmm. uh, think kangaroo, think possum. So they um, have their ureters and those that's the tubes that connect from your kidneys to your bladder. Mm -hmm. Right. Remember, your kidneys make the pee, goes down the tube into the bladder, then out the body through the urethra. Mm -hmm. So that now you can picture that set of tubes. Right. So their uh, ureters, the tubes going to their bladder from their kidneys, go in between multiple vaginas. OK, so they have a single uro. Uh, genital 
uh, sinus, which, you know, is where both their pee and their reproductive material come out. Um, but the thing that's connecting their bladder to the kidneys is literally going in between like a weirdly designed bad highway system, you know, between those vaginas. And what that means effectively, besides just like, oh, that's an anatomical quirk, Mm -hmm. is that they can't have very big babies come out their vaginas. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, they have multiple vaginas because they have two uteri, as do many mammals still today. Our uterus is merged from two organs, which once upon a time were the shell glands, right? So anyway, so you can't have very big babies come out of tubing that is directly adjacent to your ureters because you're very likely to tear open your tubing inside as the thing comes out and then you die of nitrous poisoning, basically. Mm -hmm. There's a reason you want pee to come out of your body. It would would poison (laughs) you otherwise, right? right? So so they had a basic limitation in their body plan. That's the theory anyway. Mm that uh, for whatever reason, we didn't. We had our ureters in the right spot. And so uh, we were able to build bigger and bigger babies uh, without having to have them come out as teeny tiny jelly beans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned it there and you mentioned in the book is that marsupials have one vagina for each uterus. So they have like two, yep. like two, right? They have a minimum of two. They sometimes also have three. So the sperm comes up the sides and then the baby comes out the middle. Sometimes they'll even have four. I believe. Uh, Sometimes it's in place all the time, and sometimes it's spontaneously created at the moment of birth. Marsupials are weird. Um, Yeah. I know. I know. I mean, personally, I think it'd be a lot of fun to have some extra vaginas. (laughs) I don't know what I could do with them, but it it could be cool. But but I'm glad to not have pee ripped out through my whole body trying to have a baby. That doesn't sound good. Uh, But humans have one in one, right? It's it's one. Yeah. The vast majority of us. Not all, actually. (laughs) Not all. It is um, uh, divergent paths in the development of typical female uh, reproductive organs, including the uterus uh, and the vagina, sometimes uh, go a little bit awry in ways that look suspiciously like how the thing evolved in the first place. So the most common thing is that it's a little bit heart-shaped. There's a little dent in the top. Um, And lots and lots and lots of women have that. Mm. Doesn't seem to cause any problem. Uh, then again, slightly less common, but still common. You have what's called a septate uterus where you have this fibrous kind of band of tissue kind of down the middle of the uterus, Mm. but it stops about halfway down, Mm. right? So you can kind of picture like a very heart shaped Mm. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, still a thing that happens. Uh, you have a two whole uteri connected to, uh, well, it's almost as as if it's horned with one cervix and one vagina. Sometimes you'll have two services with two uteruses, uteri, and, and a single vagina. And sometimes you'll even have a double vagina. Um, oh. it's, that's the most rare, a oh. dual uterus and dual uh, vagina. But as I, 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 I get, provide illustrations of all of these in the book. You do, yes. Uh, yeah, 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 which is just kind of wild to realize. But uh, well, it's very helpful. I found it's very helpful. Very, very, very helpful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those were just, uh, an illustrator worked with me to create them based on some anatomical textbooks. So Mm -hmm. I just knew that everybody could see what the hell I was talking about. (laughs) Um, What I found cool about it is that not all um, developmental snafus betray our evolutionary past necessarily. Mm. Sometimes they just arrive kind of spontaneously and it doesn't say anything to do with our past. But uterine malformations and their commonality are actually deeply indicative of Mm. our evolutionary path. Wow. Wow, that's super fascinating. 
and th- and then there's this like there's this coevolution with with uh for for males so the the um you know for for marsupials the males will have not i guess they don't have two penises but they have like they have a forked penis yeah 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 two heads or like the echidna which has four mm-hmm. right, right like four, a clover leaf well, yeah, 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 yeah clover yeah. leaf yeah. yeah 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 which oh god i just i love those weird little guys so much <laughs> so they only ever erect two of their penile heads at once mm. when they have uh sex with a female but then the next time they have sex with a female they'll erect the opposite two like a weird game game of like sexual whack-a-mole you know and it's just and and that's just how they do that that's just how they do that so feel free to explore the internet it's wild out there <laughs> that is so so strange and so, i mean for us as humans so it's but but the the point I make there is that it is interesting how you do see this coevolution, right? There there's there's a yeah. there's a purpose and utility there of sorts of like okay this wasn't just random or this wasn't just like a whoops or something like that. Like there you do see the functionality of it even you know on on both sides where where you know there's you know, male and female population. Yeah, well I would say I would just offer that all evolution is a whoops. It's just that some of those accidents then turn out to be beneficial and then if they're genetically uh built you know uh are selected for over time mm. right so everything's a whoops mm-hmm. it's just some whoops helped yeah 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 <laughs> that's a good way of saying it so tell us real quick about the placenta it's a very interesting mm. uh um part of the story of how things have evolved that we obviously still have today i mean it's it, You've heard these stories, right? Where people will eat the placenta. Have you heard about this, right? Right, where some some people will do all kinds of crazy some, stuff. Some, some interesting things there. There's some some nutritional value there. I don't know, but tell us about. The... I mean, it's not that different from eating a weird cut of meat. I I don't. That's what I've heard. Invasion. That's yeah. That's just um, here. There is plenty of placental eating in other apes mm-hmm. um, and some other uh, non-ape primates as well. Um, I am always suspicious about. Uh, you know, cultural trends where we start doing stuff with the argument that our ancestors did it and therefore it's what we should do. Mm-hmm. Our ancestors did all kinds of stuff that we may <laughs> not necessarily want to do. Um, so more power to the people who want to eat bits of their own body effectively, but, you know, mm. not me. Yeah. Wasn't into that. Yeah. So tell us about the, the, the function of the placenta. Obviously, it's, you know, stores, yeah. you know, the, the uterus, all these things, but are the... um. The fetus, but what is the the story there with the placenta and all the maybe some of the, the different parts and stuff? The big story of the placenta and why it matters so much that ours is the way it is and that marsupials are generally not that way is that our placenta is deeply invasive. That means um, the blood vessels of the placenta penetrate all the way down into the mother's bloodstream with uh, interlocking blood vessels and exchange. Um, now, most marsupial placentas. Um, kind of pop off. They look like a teeny little disc. And when it's time for that very tiny jelly bean to literally crawl its way out of mom and up into her pouch with its weirdly strongly developed forelimbs usually and totally underdeveloped uh, rear leg buds, which is definitely alien looking. I've seen videos. Um, You know, like they don't have to, there isn't a lot of detachment that needs to happen because there wasn't all that much development, which is to say resource pulling from the mother's uterus before it was time for them to go into pouch phase, Mm. right? Now, with the way we do it, there's a range of how invasive our placentas are. Like a mouse placenta is still pretty pretty shallow. Mm. 
Um, not it depends on the species of rodent, you know, but but generally think of it still as a tiny little disc. Because the placenta, mm, I should start maybe earlier and just remind folk that the placenta is that big fleshy dinner plate looking thing, mm -hmm. which is where the embryo and the amniotic sac is attaching to the uterus, right? That's how it docks on. It's true that the fetus is essentially free floating in that fluid inside the womb, inside the amniotic sac, but it is attached to the freaking uterus. Of course it is, because that's how it's getting all of its nutrients uh, and, and blood and liquid and everything else that it needs to grow out a whole new body, right? So our placenta, the human placenta, is wildly invasive. And actually, it does have something in common with a few other species that menstruate the way we do. Mm. So the big story of human menstruation is not that we very annoyingly and awkwardly and sometimes embarrassingly shed material out of our vaginas. Uh, it's true that I would love for that to stop. Uh, highly recommend IUDs, people. It does limit that problem. But nonetheless, if it's right for you, um, if you have a uterus, that's right for you. But uh, it's like, it's obviously just a thing that our body does. But that's actually not the big story of menstruation. It's not this ex that it happens externally. The big thing that's interesting about what we do is that we start building up the uterine lining before an embryo is even coming down the pipe. Hmm. Now, in most mammals, the uterine lining starts building up in response to chemical signaling from a fertilized egg that's coming down the fallopian tubes, okay? That's when you start making that thick, plushy bed, which in humans and some other species is then shed if nothing in plants, right? Because for those of you who know what menstruation is, right? <laughs> so what we do is we start building it up before we even get that signal. And there are a number of species that do that as well, it turns out. Uh, some other great apes, and weirdly, I think the elephant shrew. Anyway, um, so the thing that's common among all of those who have that spontaneous desituation is we all have really invasive placentas. Like the medium invasive and the shallow placentas, no, 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 you don't start building up a line. You all good, right? Mm. But for those of us who have an incoming, um, you know, weapon of mass destruction, effectively, <laughs> um, coming down the tube, something that's really going to hot dock in very deeply to, to the uterine wall, we start building up a thick lining, not only for the idea of supporting such a pregnancy, but also to protect the mother's body, mm. right? Because if you don't have a nice thick lining, then that very invasive placenta is going to go into your outer uterine wall and you do not want that. Mm. That is very, very bad. That's all kinds of hemorrhage and, mm. you know, death. Mm. That's a whole lot of death. Mm -hmm. You don't want that, right? Well, not for every woman, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So so that's the actually the big story for why we menstruate. We menstruate because human pregnancy is like trench warfare, right? There is maternal fetal competition for resources within the environment of the womb with the fetus long evolving to get as many nutrients as it can and the mother's body long evolving to survive this crazy process of how we make babies the way we do, mm. right? So it's not that pregnancy is this wonderful, warm, long period of just cuddling and supporting a growing fetus. It's more like a detente. It's more <laughs> like a, it's, it's like a nine month conflict where it's kind of a stalemate and neither side wins quite too much. And then there's birth. Mm. It's more like that. But that's not the story that we hear in sex ed class or whatever it is in high school or whatever. Why, why don't why don't we hear this story, right? Like this seems more accurate. I mean, we do kind of get that kind of 
it you know it's a you know a woman's body preparing for pregnancy whatever whatever which isn't entirely untrue but it's definitely not the way in which you're describing it why why do you think we still get right. that story in in you know sex ed class or wherever oh that's probably just sexism um <laughs> i mean you know like usually the answer you know as you see in my book it's it's often not the case that the answer is so se- simple as oh it's just sexism usually there are like deep complex reasons why we mm. think the things we do about female bodies but like why we've assumed for so long that like pregnancy is good for a woman's body or that, you know, that we, it is our destiny to become pregnant and everything our body does is to support a baby. Well, that's just because of very cultural ideas about what women are for and what our bodies are for. It turns out we are not simply empty vessels waiting to be filled. Um, that in fact, we are complex members of a complex social species that reprodu- reproduce, that make our babies the way we do. Uh, in a way that's actually very dangerous. Yeah. Um, that's long evolved to be kind of a shit show, frankly. <laughs> um, and and so, you know, menstruation is actually more of a self-protective mm. feature in mm. that sense. Um, so yeah, so the reason we don't tell that story usually is one, it took a long time in the biological sciences to accept the idea of maternal fetal conflict mm. because it goes against that idea of what we have about mothers, basically, and what females are kind of for. In that deep sense, you know what I mean. I mean, I get um, it, but that's not. But it's not accurate. But it's not. It's not. It's not an accurate thing. It's not. It's not placing this. This. What the you think eugenics person. was accurate? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, come on. There's a lot in the history of science that was like clearly a bad idea. Okay, <laughs> eugenics is not accurate. Uh, that pregnancy is innately good for a woman's body. Not accurate. Like, okay, all right. But then we get we get closer to the truth, and we and we just move on and try not to make such hideous mistakes again. What, well, this this ties into the beginning part of your book of that whole thing of like where you don't have the like you know if if you're, if you're studying a, a the female body that person should be central, right? Like that person should be like, well, what is it from, how do we try to understand how the female body works from that perspective? Not uh, in this case, you know, males just trying to say, you know, paint whatever story or have these things. Like, I think you have to have it from this, this perspective of like, yeah, like you're going to know best about your body. We should have people that are studying, uh, you know, female reproduction in a way that is as close as you can to being accurate, not, creating a just so story or some other kind of story that, you know, makes uh, whatever your cultural implications feel good. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also think um, in many cases in the book, um, a chapter will essentially launch, not simply with a description of the Eve, which is a metaphor for something being used as an exemplar or the true last common ancestor of a tree mm-hmm. that places us where we are in the taxonomic tree. So each of the chapters in the book is kind of set up that way, mm-hmm. that here's a new trait, here's a new Eve and her ecological Eden, and what can we learn? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it also begins as a kind of thought experiment. Like, okay, here's a trait that we say is very important for mammals. What happens when we ask about the female? Mm-hmm. Does that change the story we tell about this trait? Does that change the lens with through which we understand what's up here? So the goal isn't always to like make the female the hero or anything. In fact, hero stories are a big problem in science. Um, you know, uh, we're a complex social species and uh, also our science is done collectively, 
right? Um, even a single paper is usually dozens of people working together, yeah. right? So, so I'm very allergic to a hero story, and it's not my goal to make the female the hero in every case. It's more like um, we haven't been asking the question, what about the female yeah. in many cases, mm-hmm. uh, as we build evolutionary models for these traits and we, we build understandings of what they're doing in the body over deep time and in our bodies now, right? So, um, so once you give yourself that assignment of that thought experiment, um, it opens up many new modes of thought, mm. right? Yeah. Um, for ways of understanding what went down. It is true in mammals, at least, that um, while females, I wouldn't say, are more important than males. It's not like that. We're a sexed species, right? So obviously you can't get a subsequent generation without, mm-hmm. you know, uh, your two sets of gametes there. It's more like um, because the way mammals reproduce is so obviously costly mm-hmm. for the female. What that means is that divergence in the female body uh, has a bit more pressure. Mm. Which it, And what I mean by that is um, when things go wrong in a female body, it's immediately more costly mm. to the species. Uh, and when things go right or usefully or a new ad- adaptation accidentally comes along that gives a big leg up, it's going to be that much more advantageous if it's tied to the body that is making uh, the next generation, mm. right? Um, so, so in that sense, it's also a little bit perverse that we had so clearly neglected the female in, in our evolution for so long um, because we are mammals. Yeah, I'll just say from, from my dude's perspective um i always find i think it's like extremely powerful and like amazing that you know women i would not sign up to do any of those things none of that sounds great doesn't sound like a good time and i always so it's interesting for me because i'm never going to me personally i'm never going to have those experiences so it's always interesting to to be curious about what that experience is like but also I always get, maybe this is just me, this is my perspective, but anytime I, I, I know of somebody that is, is pregnant, I get really worried. Not like in the, oh, can I hold the door open for you or make sure you don't trip and fall. I get worried about all of the things that could go wrong throughout nine months. Are you months. an anxiety prone person? No, not typically. Not typically. Okay. Not typ- okay. I mean, sometimes, but not typically. But then like, I think about- so Pregnancy is a trigger for you for some reason. I mean, yeah. kind of, yeah. I mean, because like I think about all the things about like that I've that I've I've uh, sure. you know, read and researched about the female body and that process, and like, yeah, there's some really wonderful parts to it. There's a lot of terrible parts from what from many women told me. But then there's like the whole process of labor, which is dangerous in some ways. Like, it's not great. I mean, there are risks to doing it. I mean, that's not like I mean, yes, we've done it, and there you know you know there's doctors that do it, like multiple ones every day, but there is always an element of risk. And I always think about that of like, yeah, like we talk about the high points of like pregnancy and it's, it is a kind of a miraculous thing and all, I get all that, but like, it's also kind of risky too. Like uh, I think of it from a risk perspective, is what I should say. Oh, uh, and I think that's very smart of you to think of it that way. I think a lot of people struggle to think of it that way, usually because of this idea that, oh, well, it's what the female body has always done. And so, you all good, you know, just get yourself some good prenatal care slash midwifery and cheers. Yeah, no. You know, I, we'll pass around the cigar later. Um, I don't, I and then, don't of think course, the general, like, invisibility of what female bodies go through because of taboo, because mm-hmm. we're not allowed to talk about things. You know, there's just a lot of complex stuff mm-hmm. keeping this thing a little bit hidden. But it's also true that um, 
just because something is normal doesn't mean it's okay. Of course. Right? Of course. Yeah. So it is very normal to give birth the way that we do. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's cool. Um, <laughs> and in fact, when you look at other species, which of course is something I'm doing a lot in this book, um, it becomes very clear very quickly that human reproduction is um, a flaming garbage pile, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, not the sex part necessarily. We're both very enthusiastic about that. Generally, as a species, we're into right. that. Yeah. And like, it seems to roughly go okay so long as you don't break the penis, it's all good. And, right. and obviously, as long as everything's done with consent between adults. Right. But um, the, thing, the thing about our reproduction beyond that point mm -hmm. is that our pregnancies and births and postpartum recoveries mm -hmm. are longer and harder and more prone to crippling and or deadly complications for both mother and offspring. In other words, yeah, we have 8 billion people alive in the world, but we still actually suck at this, right? <laughs> Compared yeah. to other, most other primates, except for the squirrel monkey. And we feel really bad for her, but otherwise, right? Um, and that's, and that kind of changes how I and, and many others understand what goes down in hominin evolution, mm -hmm. right? That that what's what's a major problem that these species are facing? And we talk a lot about hunger because obviously food sourcing is a problem and collaborative efforts and climate change and all of the many, many things that we did to succeed and survive and thrive. Um, but for an evolutionary biologist, if you're not really great at making babies, that that's a hard problem. Mm -hmm. That's a full stop. That that is a a very likely flag for either extinction or like not what you would call great global success, mm -hmm. right? Um, you sh that maybe we should have ended up a curiosity in some other species zoos, mm -hmm. right? That um, because a lot of other creatures that are bad at reproducing are, and we're trying to conserve them. In mm -hmm. fact, we humans who are also bad at this. Mm -hmm. um, and the workaround, of course, was gynecology. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't the first to say it um, about midwifery. Uh, through an analysis of uh, pelvic structures, mm -hmm. it seems that Lucy, the Australopithecine, Australopithecine, that is hard to say this time of night. <laughs> yes. She lived about 3.2 million years ago, and she had a similar obstetric dilemma. She, too, was trying to fit a watermelon out of a lemon-sized hole, right? So it was a mechanical problem of, okay. And so the argument was that she needed a midwife. Mm -hmm. She needed help getting that thing out of her, right? But any and uh, and I sign on to that. I'm like, yep, that seems that seems true. But remember that that's also just the moment of birth, and what makes human reproduction so troublesome and difficult um, is actually not simply the moment that you give birth. Any good OB will tell you that the long trajectory of your reproductive life before you get pregnant greatly shapes the likelihood of complications and outcomes in the mm. moment of birth. Likewise, good prenatal care once you are pregnant profoundly impacts how likely uh, what this is going to go one way or another, right? And likewise in postpartum recovery, there's a whole lot of healing to do yeah, because of yeah. how we do what we do. And so assistance in that space and medical and social care in that space also greatly determines whether or not you're likely to survive uh, and your baby too. Now, this isn't to like terrify your pregnant listeners. <laughs> the point here is simply that in our deeply evolved body plan and social systems the big problem we needed to overcome was how bad we were at making babies and the way we overcame it was by using all of our really special really clever hominin and then human traits 
which is clever problem solving and deep interconnected and interdependent sociality and, and workarounds and adaptability, right? Um, all of those things that we usually praise in the human species today and that we argue is why we managed to succeed was actually used to overcome our most basic problem in inventing gynecology. Mm. Yeah, well, I was going to say that I fully agree that, you know, in talking about pregnancy, the, the fact is, is that for, there, I know there's books and things out there like, you know, this for, for people that are pregnant and I, I get it, but um, each pregnancy for each person is going to be different, right? And I think that yes. there's each person's body's different. Even if you've had seven children, each one's going to be a little bit different and each person's body is, is different and the recovery and all these things. So. I think that's also something important to to remember. And yeah, you're bringing up Lucy. Is I remember, um, I think it was uh, Jeremy De Silva. He wrote this mm -hmm. great book. Uh, it's called First Steps, where he talks about how us becoming uh, or evolving to be bipedal really shaped and changed a lot of things. It's a great book. It, mm -hmm. We had a really nice conversation yep. about this. But this was one of them. I remember he, he, this is where I really kind of like that light bulb went off in my head. He was like, mm -hmm. yeah, he, I think he showed me, you know, this is what, uh, you know, uh, a chimpanzee's, you know, kind of pelvic uh, structure looks like, their bone structure. And this is the mm -hmm. size of, like, the, the, the chimpanzee baby's head. And it just, like, yep. right through. Just drops out. Super easy. And then here's, not a, here's yep. a human, and it's like, this does not fit. What are we going to do? Ooh. And so to your point about midwives, it's very all these ways in which we try to figure out, okay, well, how do we solve this problem? Or otherwise we're going to be extinct real fast. Okay. And, and here's the way we do that. Yeah. I would also just only add to that. Um, we know a lot about the history of potential midwifery because of things that survive in the fossil record, like pelvic structure, uh -huh. potential pelvic structure and, and bones, literally bones fossilize. Placentas don't, mm. the uterus does not. So there's, and because we can only know so much from uh, potential genetic dating, molecular clocks, right? Um, you know, with a lot of assumption about how quickly mutations do or don't arise uh, when we try and back solve, when did this gene come about? You know, um, we don't exactly know. What we do know is that we have very invasive placentas now. Uh, and one of the arguments for why we might, but I don't know, I'm kind of mixed on this, to be honest, I'll just flag that, is that. Um, we build a lot of brain in the womb, mm. and brain is incredibly expensive metabolic tissue. Mm. It's some of the most costly stuff you're running in your body, actually. It's like a sports car that lives in your head and is always kept on idle. It's, uh, it takes a lot of gas. Uh, I don't know how far I want to push this metaphor, but yeah, it takes <laughs> a lot of gas. It's incredibly buggy. It requires a lot of expensive fixes. When it goes wrong, it tends to go catastrophically wrong, and it's just living in your head, and you constantly have to feed this thing, right? Mm. So. Um, so one of the theories out there for why we've developed our taxing pregnancies the way we have is, is that as encephalization marches on uh, and our brain tissue gets bigger and we're having to do more of that in the womb, um, well, then the embryo is potentially evolving in ways that hoover down more resources from the mother's body. I'm, uh, I don't know, I think I'm kind of 50-50 or maybe 60-40 split on that. Mm. I just, I haven't settled yet mm. if that's the big story of the placenta. I do know that we have a really invasive placenta. But the thing about that being important, though, in the idea of it being um, risky, mm. talking about risk, you know, with pregnancy and birth and what have you, is that um, having such having a placenta the way we do uh, it presents a number of problems. 
it downregulates the mother's immune system. Uh, of course it does. All mammalian pregnancy does, but uh, invasive placenta species especially so. Mm. Um, because otherwise the mother's immune system would quite rightly try to defend itself from this invader, right? So, so you have that uh, co-evolution, mm -hmm. right, of an immune system responding and then an offspring, you know, trying to turn down the dial. Um, it affects your blood pressure. It affects your liver functionality. It affects your freaking kidneys. Your blood volume goes way up carrying this thing. And which is to say that it's not simply the mechanics of birth, but having that longer pregnancy, which is so metabolically taxing and has so many effects in so many body systems that provides a number of well, fail points, mm. right? You know, now that said, I mean, um, it just depends how you calculate risk. Technically, there is no point in a human pregnancy that is totally safe because many pregnancy complications can develop very quickly. And uh, you go from zero to hemorrhage, you know, kind of fast. And that's more and more true the later in a pregnancy you get. However, modern gynecology is awesome. And prenatal care is amazing. And I personally would be very, very dead without it. I would be so deceased multiple times over if it weren't for the amazing care that I received during my pregnancies, both the miscarriages and uh, the babies that I ended up making that are still alive. Last I heard, they're back in Seattle. Um, so. So yeah, you're right. There, there is no point in a pregnancy that is fully without risk. Um, personally, I fully support all of those uh, parents who are pregnant and, you know, feel really good about what's going down in their bodies and maybe even have a little bit of a hormonal high and are just liking this stuff. I'm like, that's awesome. That's great. You do that. Rock on. You know, um, I think we can say that parents can be fully informed of the risk and still celebrate the fun stuff, mm. if you are lucky enough to have it, right? We can all admit this sucks yeah. without compromising the innate wonder of pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think both of those things are true many times at the same time. And I think having those kinds of uh, honest or transparent ways of talking about it, it's, it's a strange thing culturally where if, if, if you hear a woman say something negative about while she's pregnant about, you know, the reality of whatever it may be that's difficult it's all of a sudden is you know oh you're resentful towards you know your pregnancy or you know whatever you're not gonna be mom of the year and it's like that's ridiculous like it's not gonna always be you know uh a bed of roses that's that's i mean <laughs> you know being a parent is 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 really difficult and you know carrying a child is difficult and i think it's it's important to be honest about all of the experiences you know i think that's that's really important I mean, Xavier, we're just supposed to be so very, very grateful that someone's knocked us up. <laughs> we're just we're just supposed to pray to God every single day for the wonderful gift that has been rendered inside of our womb. No, I mean, come on now. Like, but it's true. It's true. A lot of a lot of us feel that very social pressure yeah, to be yeah, the perfect not... pregnant person and the endlessly grateful mother. And of course, as you know, as a practicing clinician, those kinds of, you know, messages uh, those kinds of stories we tell ourselves mm -hmm. about who we're supposed to be can be really dangerous of course. in the postpartum period. Of course, yeah. Not just dangerous um, in the most overt sense of postpartum depression and, and taking your mood seriously if it's really taken a big dip, mm -hmm. right? Which is a problem. And the more open and honest we are about that, the more lives will be saved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but also simply just basic coping, mm. just basic coping, which is something that's already hard. If you're busy telling yourself the story that you're supposed to be endlessly grateful 
for the seed that has been given to you, <laughs> you know, then um, you're not going to have the energy mm. for uh, the difficult thing you're trying to do, becoming a parent. Mm. Yeah, 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 I totally agree. So I have I have two final questions. There's so many things you talk about in the book, which I, I can't cover everything. So you talk about perception, you talk about intelligence, uh, you talk about so many different things. Uh, but I want to ask two things here. The one thing is about the grandmother hypothesis. So I've talked about this a variety of times on the, the podcast. It's a very interesting uh, concept. And you had a, a kind of a new, uh, I, an idea I haven't heard. I don't know if it's new. It's an idea I haven't heard. Um, mm -hmm. Do you know, uh, oh, I'm going to mess this up. Uh, Susan Mattern, she wrote the book, uh, The Slow Moon Rises. Uh, I do not. It's, um, she's a historian. She writes about the history of menopause and oh, cool. it's really cool. It's a really cool book. She's really lovely. I'll check it out. And, um, I think her in the back half of the book, she gives the idea that potentially menopause is a cultural syndrome for folks in the West. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, hmm. and so anyways, but, but she talks at length about the grandmother hypothesis and goes over many of the same claims and things like that of why. Um, we see females living past the age of, uh, of when they're uh, past when they're fertile. So you give the claim, I think you pull from like how we see, I think it's orcas that do this and stuff, that maybe grandmothers and their, I guess you could say, utility is to impart wisdom. You, you kind of seem to rely mm -hmm. heavily on the interdependence, the kind of social kind of components of this. What is it about the the ideas that are given that seem not satisfactory about the hypothesis and why you kind of choose the, the, the wisdom. So there are two components of the grandmother hypothesis. Um, one is what is the mechanism driving it? Uh, and is it unique to our species? Uh, and, you know, so that's a, a physiological story, right? Essentially. And one is the social story, assuming it is selected for, for us to no longer have babies for a full third of our adult lives or the potential to live that long, you know. Um, uh, is it then beneficial to our offspring? Is, does it become genetically selected for because of uh, the ways in which an unburdened uh, grandmother figure uh, could then usually not only not compete with her daughter for local resources and mates, right, in the ancient or, or mm -hmm. AP kind of history, depending where this arises. Mm -hmm. um, my mom and I aren't dating the same people, last I checked, but you know. Um, but like in that, in that deep biological sense, a long, long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also that um, given that our babies are so very, well, frankly, useless mm -hmm. when they come out mm -hmm. for a very long time, so needy, that's usually the word that's used in biology, needy. Um, we have to do a lot of heavy caretaking, keep them alive and help them survive and thrive for a long period uh, before they are more independent in our species, right? Um, does having grandma around help for that? Now, I have a lot of sympathy for, you know, why we might think that these social perks uh, would be beneficial. I have two kids, ages three and five, and I would not be on book tour right now if someone else wasn't watching them. <laughs> and uh, one of the people watching them is indeed my mother-in-law, who is miraculous. Her name is Latika. She was born in Nairobi, and she's currently in Seattle helping out with my grandkids along with uh, the father of said children. <laughs> so um, it's, it's great that we help each other out. Of course. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, would she be so freely available to if she had her own babies right now? I mean, true. Yeah, probably 
probably not. Mm. Probably not. Also, however, because she's in her 70s, that would probably hurt mm. and be tiring. And um, many reasons why it's, it's great. So the first thing that I found a little bit of an issue with was the mechanism side of that question, which is to say, did our ovaries evolve to specially shut down early? Mm. Right. In other words, did they detach from our longevity plan? Like every species has a has a general longevity plan, like an average age at which males and females tend to kick the bucket, right? And that you might be able to extend beyond an average age, but there's there's often a cap on that, yeah. where aging catches up to to you, senescence looks the way it does, your teeth are falling out, and you die. Okay, <laughs> bye. Right? That's as true of mouse as it is of us, mm-hmm. mice and men. This is true. Mm-hmm. So. Um, The interesting thing that I found, and this is partially Susan Albert's work in primatology, but there are others, and uh, actually there's some embargoed things that I can't talk about right now. But Mm. anyway, the general idea seems to be that um, primate ovaries senesce, that means they age, at a very similar rate across multiple species, right? If you controlled basically for lifespan, you know, that there's this, they tend to peter out in such a way, Mm. right? Um, and so in other words, the story of our menopause may not be the fact that our ovaries age and stop popping out eggs, which of course is how we then are fertile, right? Um, and could have babies, Mm -hmm. right? Menopause kicks in again when you stop making eggs and stop having periods. That's, that's that transition around age 50 for most people. Um, but rather that we massively extended the human lifespan to as much as an additional third of what we had been working with before. Now, we don't know exactly when that happened. Yeah. There are some ways of knowing, uh, usually with looking at how teeth uh, shift from milk teeth to adult teeth and, and looking at layers of enamel a little bit like uh, tree rings. Actually, that's mm-hmm. part of how you can age uh, some of our, our skeletal ancestors that we've dug up. So, you know, we don't know exactly when that went down, but we do know that it happened. We also assume that for a very long time, it probably didn't happen very often, right? Because of the local jaguar, right? Remember that for a very long time, usually infection, actually, uh, but many of the things that would take us out took us out well before we would become, you know, a 60 or 70 year old person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But nowadays, of course, we have lots of social support and we have probably physiological mechanisms that help the rest of our bodies keep going. And the idea is well, maybe the ovaries just didn't get the message. Maybe they're just still running the old monkey plan, as it were, <laughs> and the rest of us kind of just keep keep living on, mm. you know. Um, and by the rest of us, I mean literally our other organs, mm. right? Um, and so that's a different way of thinking about how the grandmother hypothesis could even have kicked off, right? Mm. That we would be selecting for longevity in general with then the fact of no babies being a thing that's a result of selecting for longevity, mm. right? So then it's like, oh, okay, well, if that's the thing, then like, why were we selecting for longevity? Mm. And in many, many different social species, older members of a group are the ones who hold knowledge that by definition, the younger members don't have because they didn't encounter a rare crisis before. So that's how, I think it's like four species of toothed whale uh, have menopause, something like that. But I lean a lot on transient orcapods. Um, because one, we very recently discovered this. It's hard to study things that live in deep water. Mm. So there's that. Uh, finally got enough scientists on boats, cetacean experts, and we could track that down. Um, but the thing is, is that these matriarchal, uh, mm-hmm. menopausal orca, uh, killer whales, living again, like us, a full third of their adult lives without making babies, 
with presumably senescing aging ovaries, you know, along the way, um, they aren't really responsible for a lot of extra child care of the grandbabies. They do a lot of assistance with their sons, actually. Like every male uh, member of these uh, of this species is a mama's boy, like mm-hmm. stays with her for life. And when she dies, in fact, he dies much sooner than he would otherwise have. Um, even when he's a full-ass, grown, giant killer whale, it's just that the social interdependence of that relationship um, greatly influences his health. Anyway, so she's not really, like, getting extra food for the grandbabies. She's not really, like, doing extra defense for the grandbabies. Like, that doesn't seem to be what the menopausal older females are doing. What they are known for doing is leading the pods to special food sources in times of crisis. Local food runs out, she leads the pod to where's a good place to go that not everyone knows about because they haven't gone there. She also seems to be particularly important in helping teach younger generations to um, do special hunting techniques, like uh, this cool thing that some killer whales do where they line up all in a row like linebackers and bum rush and ice flow such that the bow wake of their massive bodies moving in the water rolls over the top of that ice flow and knocks off a poor seal who is trying to sunbathe there. It's very sad for the seal and very good for the orca. Um, so they're, which is to say what they're valuable for in that social species is their wisdom. Mm-hmm. They're valuable for what they know, what they can offer their social group from that wealth of leadership and knowledge, which of course is something you want to tell any older human being. Like the reason you're valuable is because you know stuff. So it's a nice story. Um, it's just useful, I think, in that that may also well have been true in our obviously very deeply interdependent, very social species over deep time, where um, as we moved especially into multiple different uh, ecological environments, right, uh, multiple different places in the world, we were known for our adaptability, but part of how we adapted, of course, was by having these complex social uh, worlds, which were probably better strengthened by having some old members who knew what to do in times of rare crisis. Hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I, I found myself, I, I never, I hadn't really heard this, so I had more and more questions about it, and I like the way you, you laid it out. And I, I think it is interesting to see what, what we could learn from other, you know, social uh, mammals that are, are doing this and saying, okay, what, it, what could that mean maybe for us? Or in many, right. in many ways, it does seem more because of just we're living longer that it's a more of a newer occurrence of sorts and so that's yes. it's, it's an interesting thing you you end the book you talk there's the last chapter which i wish we could get into but uh talk about love which is obviously a very interesting uh <laughs> it's an interesting thing an idea that we all feel and know and it's very difficult but you also uh towards the end you talk about i believe you ended right towards the, the last couple pages about you say that that we've evolved to be sexist, but that we don't have to be, and that women have given all the power to that men have over women, and that we can hopefully reverse that as we move forward in the in the in the twenty first century. So, just uh, what is the the final thing you want to say on on that bit or about the book uh, generally uh, uh, of what you're trying to to say here? So I wrote quite a lot of the conclusion for the book uh, during the Obama era um, because I uh, didn't write everything in order. And then, of course, I went back and revised. And, you know, it was a piecemeal process of looping through 
the book and its structure as I moved forward in my research. But of course, uh, as Trump came into uh, his presidency, and then Biden after him, I have had to repeatedly uh, kind of sit with my feelings, as it were, um, as many people have uh, for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And I had to, because my book ends on a hopeful note, as you say, mm-hmm. um, because I do believe we are moving inexorably towards a more sex egalitarian future or gender egalitarian, mm-hmm. a future that embraces diversity of bodies and culture, and most certainly between this most obvious. Um, uh, diversion of body type, which is male and female. Now, I do it in a number of ways, uh, as you've seen yourself reading um, in that chapter. Um, but fundamentally, I, I had to decide if I still felt that way when it came publication time. Mm. I, had to, I had to decide if I wanted to change my ending. Mm. You know what I mean? Because mm. needless to say, there have been some uh, really painful losses mm. when it comes to the rights of women and girls mm-hmm. um, in this country and elsewhere. Uh, Things which, uh, no matter where you are in a political spectrum, also obviously impact the health of of women and girls Mm. everywhere. There's been a massive downgrade in public support for gynecology of all types uh, across the board, not simply in birth control, but also obviously, Mm -hmm. Um, and how we might educate girls. There's just been, there's been a lot of a feeling of loss among the she-folk, let's say, and uh, and it's hard. It's hard to decide if, if there's reason for us to still feel hopeful. Mm. And the odd privilege that I've had over the last decade is that I've been thinking a lot about deep time, mm. which means that I, I'm in a unique position to be able to pull the camera back and say, what is the deep trend? Mm. If you look historically, even in known history over the last few hundred years, it is very astonishingly clear that we have been moving forward and forward and forward to more sex egalitarianism in many different human cultures, not only in the West, actually. Um, It becomes very, very clear if you look at the evolution of our physiology from early hominins forward, that there are, as I say in the book, many physical traits that seem to indicate a reduction of male competition, right? Um, Which, uh, wherein males are no longer quite so much bigger than females. We talk about human men being bigger than human women. Again, I'm referring to cis men and cis women here, mm-hmm. right? You know, the averages. We're talking about the shit, the hump of the curve here, not the outline, right? Sure. So, so we talk about that, but actually you guys are not that much bigger than us. Mm. Like a male chimp is way bigger than a female chimp comparatively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, gorillas are massive compared to female <laughs> gorillas. The male is huge, yeah. right? And so those are all different models that other apes have for what a lot of male-male competition might look what different mating strategies we have. Right? Mm. And over the hominin line, you can see in the fossils that the male and female are getting a little bit more equal sized. Those big fangs that most male primates have, those show teeth that they flash at one another, usually to avoid fighting, actually. If you look dangerous enough, then you don't have to get hurt because he runs away. So that's why it's called a show trait. I show this to you, then we don't have to fight, right? Mm. You know, that that likewise uh, shrinks back into the mouth and now all you get is like the occasional Tom Cruise, right? Just like not a lot of show teeth going on, there, you know? Right, right. And likewise, you get, um, well, we won't get into it now, but uh, there's quite a lot to be seen in male genitalia and how it doesn't exactly align with a lot of male-male competition that we see in the chimps. Which is to say, the story of our past is written on our bodies and our bodies don't tell a story of a lot of male-male competition. Our stories seem to, our bodies seem to be telling the story of becoming more sex egalitarianism, 
over the course of hominin evolution and into humanity now. Mm. So that isn't to say that people aren't suffering. Sure. That isn't to say that sexism isn't wildly detrimental as it exists today. You know, it absolutely is. But I remain hopeful because I'm able to pull the camera back and know that we seem to very much still be on the right track. It's just largely our goal to uh, reduce as much suffering as we can along the way, right? But losing hope is, well, it's, it's, you would have to ignore our history to lose hope. Yeah, yeah. I like that framing, that kind of that, that very long kind of you know, wide lens of looking at how we go throughout millions of years and thousands of years and seeing like, yeah, there is a lot to be hopeful for. There's a lot of, there's a lot of tough stuff for sure. Uh, there's been good progress. There's still lots of progress to be had, but, um, you know, I think that there is, there is still room for hope. And so, um, I think your book is super important, super essential for people to read and to be educated on and to really get that perspective. The book is called Eve, how the female body drove 200 million years of human evolution. And it's fantastic. It's one, actually, it's one of the best books I've read this year. I'll be very honest with you. I really enjoyed it. I really, oh, did. Thank I really, you. I, That's so nice. I really, really did. I really did enjoy it. Uh, every now and then a book will kind of stick out for you. And this one definitely did. Um, any places that you want to point folks to, whether it's, it's uh, stuff online or any, any places that you're going to be at or anything you want to point people to, to, to find you? You're certainly welcome to look at my website. It's my name.com. So catbohannon.com. Uh, and I list my tour dates on there. Mm. Um, uh, that's, that's one place you can look if you want to come see me say the things live on stage. There you go. Well, and I hope uh, people go out and uh, buy your book. Uh, Kat, this was so much fun. I appreciate you giving me your time and your, your wisdom and your energy. I'm so, so thankful that we were able to have a, a conversation. I, I really did enjoy it. This was great, Saber. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. <coughs> okay, I'm going to stop my recording.